Well, a very good morning to you all. Truly, what a blessed morning. And as I was thinking about all the events of today, adding new members to the church, appointing elders to the church, I was thinking, truly, Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his church. To add new members to the church is a precious, precious thing. And to add elders to the church is a precious, precious reality. I was speaking to one of my pastor friends not so long ago, and he was just yearning to have a plurality of elders. And the fact that Cornerstone has a plurality of elders, and not just that, but has men that are qualified to be elders, is a sign of God's grace. It's a sign that Jesus loves his church. And just on a personal note, I want to thank Ben Liao. Thank you, Ben, for your years of service. Thank you for being missions-minded and helping us to look outside of our walls, to look outside even of our country. Thank you for being an example to the flock, not only of godliness, but also of sacrifice. And thank you also on a personal note for one Saturday morning at 8 a.m. teaching me of the glories of having pho for breakfast. <laughs> thank you, Ben. I'll never forget that. <laughs> Did you know you guys could eat pho for breakfast at 8 a.m.? It's glorious. <laughs> no, but really, on, on a serious note, Jesus loves his church. And if there is any doubt about that, we were just reminded about it in communion, were we not? I can think of no more appropriate way to cap off the events of today than by discussing the topic of church government. Church government. And if you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation, chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is the word of the living God. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, let us be as the wise men who hear your word and build our lives upon the solid rock of your word. Let us not be as the foolish men who hear your word and are merely hearers of it and not doers of it. Lord, this morning as we hear your word, Help us, Lord, not only to build our lives upon it, but to build the very church upon your word. Lord, may you be our foundation now and forevermore. We turn to you this morning and ask that you would speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Today in our series on the communion of the saints, we arrive to the topic of the government of the church. Church government. Also known as the polity of the church. Church polity. Now this is a topic that most Americans would yawn at. Or most Americans would shrug their shoulders at. Most Americans would think this topic of church government irrelevant, insignificant, or, quite frankly, boring. Now, most Americans might think that, but don't tell a Scottish covenanter that. The story of the Scottish covenanters really begins in 1534. In 1534, English Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy. The Act of Supremacy declared Henry VIII, King of England, the supreme head of the church. Thus was born Anglicanism. And thus was born the divine right of kings. The idea that the king had the right not only to rule his kingdom, but the king had the right to rule the church. The king could tell the church exactly how to worship. He appointed pastors and forced them upon the local congregations. He told them what to pray, the exact words. He even forced them to take communion in a specific way, a way which reeked of Roman Catholicism. But not all Britain would take so kindly to this. The Scottish Presbyterians, in particular, took exception. In 1638, the Scottish Presbyterians signed a document called the National Covenant. The National Covenant stated that the king had no right to tell the churches how to worship. And for this, they were called the Scottish Covenanters. The Covenanters' movement can be summed up in two very simple words. Their slogan, King Jesus. No man, not even the king of England, not even the king of the land, could tell them how to worship. No man could be the head of the church. Only Jesus is the head of the church. King Charles I warned the Scottish Covenanters that if they signed the covenant, it would be viewed as treason. Well, the Covenanters signed the covenant anyway. Better to commit treason against King Charles than to commit treason against King Jesus. In 1660, the persecution began outright. It was known as the killing time. Thousands of Covenanters were banished, tortured, and imprisoned. It is estimated that 18,000 Scottish Covenanters were killed in the next 20 years. The Scottish Covenanters gave their lives because they believed in King Jesus. No doubt, the story of the Scottish Covenanters is a story about theology. It is a story about Christology. But when you really stop to think about it, on a practical level, the story of the Covenanters is a story about polity. It is a story about church government. The Covenanters gave their lives because they would not submit their worship to the king. That is an issue of church government. It is of vital importance that the spirit of the covenanters lives on in us today as a church, as a congregation. Now, as I was preparing for this message, I noticed that nearly all books and articles on church government start with the discussion of elders. Now, while that may seem reasonable, I believe that is the wrong place to start. If we start there, we miss something altogether. Any discussion of church government should not begin with the office of elder. It should not begin with the office of deacon. Any discussion of church government must first and foremost always begin with the discussion of Jesus Christ himself. 
That is because Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the ruler of the church. Jesus is king over the church. Ephesians 1.22 says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Colossians 1.18 says, He is also head of the body, the church. So not pragmatism, not committees, not elders, not pastors, no earthly king or queen. No one but Christ is the head of the church. And so it is. That is where we will start our discussion here this morning. Let us first see the sovereign head of the church. The sovereign head of the church. The classic way to understand Christ's rule in his church is to see him in his threefold office. Scripture presents to us Christ in a threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. Christ is the true and ultimate prophet. Christ is the true and ultimate priest. Christ is the true and ultimate king. Have you ever wondered what the term Messiah means? Messiah does not mean Savior. Messiah does not mean Lord. Messiah does not mean God. Messiah means anointed. Messiah means the anointed one. Well, there were three offices in the Old Testament that were said to be anointed. Three and only three. And by now, you can surely guess what they were. Prophet, priest, and king. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. And the ultimate prophet, priest, and king is the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Even his title, Messiah, points to Jesus' threefold office. So let us see how Christ rules in his church as prophet priest, and king. Over the course of this series, we have emphasized that the church is the New Testament temple of God. Perhaps we have even belabored this point. But this is exceedingly important to grasp. Ephesians 2, 21 through 22 says, The whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The church is the true temple. The church is the true tabernacle. The church is the holy sanctuary of God. The church is the dwelling place of God. Now, this sets the context for us as we seek to understand Christ's rule as prophet, priest, and king. So let us first look at Jesus in his office of true king. Do you remember when Israel returned from captivity in Babylon? They rebuilt the temple. Israel built the second temple in the days of Ezra. And do you remember the elderly in Israel who had been alive during the first temple? Do you remember the elderly wept because the glory of the second temple did not compare with the glory of the first temple? Well, it's interesting to note that history tells us that Herod, the Herod of the Gospels, was the one who beautified the second temple. Herod poured money into the second temple. Herod added to its splendor. Now, why would Herod do that? Is it because he's such a godly man? Was Herod a true worshiper? Did Herod love Yahweh and wanted Yahweh's temple to be beautiful? Absolutely not. Herod beautified the temple because he was making a claim to the kingship of Israel. He wanted everybody 
to accept him as the king. Because everybody knows the job description of the true king of Israel. The true king would build the temple. In 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, God says to David, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your son will build a house for my name. The true Davidic king will build the temple. The true Davidic king is a temple builder. But what Herod did not understand, just like everyone else, is that the true temple was no longer going to be physical, but spiritual. The true temple was no longer going to be a building, but a body. The true temple was no longer going to be a structure, but an organism. Built not with dead stones, but with living stones. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build, huh, interesting word. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, as you remember, the word church is ecclesia, which means the called out ones, or the assembly of the called out ones. Now, that's odd, because it seems that Jesus has mixed his metaphors here. It seems like he has his analogies crossed. Because when you think of an assembly, what verbs do you normally associate with that? Well, you can gather an assembly of people. You can call an assembly of people together. You can convene an assembly of people. An assembly of people can meet together. You can use all of these verbs, but surely you don't build a temple. When you use the verb build, surely you refer to building a structure. You don't build a people, you build a house. You build a building. You build a temple. Only Jesus understands that when the true king builds his temple, he is building his church. Only the true king understands that the way to build the temple is by building the church. Only the true king understands that the true temple of God is the church of God. Jesus Christ is the true king of Israel. Jesus Christ is the true king. He is the, the kingly temple builder. He is the one building his church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Next, let us see Jesus in his office as the true prophet. The prophets of the Old Testament had two main job descriptions. They were first expositors of the law. They spoke for God. They were the mouthpieces of God. They revealed the word of God. The prophets were also the prosecutors of the law. That is, they pronounced blessings and woes according to the Mosaic Covenant. If you obeyed the covenant, they pronounced blessings upon you. If you broke the covenant, they pronounced curses upon you. Well, we, of course, see Jesus as an expositor of the law. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is giving the true meaning of the law. He is speaking as the mouthpiece of God. But we also see Jesus as a prosecutor of the law. Just as the prophets of old pronounced blessings and curses upon people, so too did Jesus. In Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces prophetic woes upon the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He is pronouncing curses upon them. He is pronouncing woes upon them. 
But he not only curses the people, he also, as the prophets of old, blessed the people. The most famous blessings of Christ are what? The Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 3 through 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. If you think the Beatitudes are just some catchy platitudes, think again. What is Jesus doing in the Beatitudes? What is Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is announcing himself as the arrival of the true and ultimate prophet of God, the expositor of the law, the prosecutor of the law. He is the true prophet who speaks God's word to his people. But God, Christ, did not only do this in his earthly ministry, he's also doing this today, right now, right here. Hebrews 12.25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Notice the tense. He is speaking. Christ is speaking. Right now, today, Christ is still speaking. This is how Christ reigns and rules in his church with an open Bible and the preaching of his word. This is how Christ the prophet preaches in his church. This is how Christ the prophet speaks in his church. Christ's sheep hear his voice. Do you hear it, brothers and sisters? Finally, let us see Jesus in his office as the true priest. The office of the priest was to mediate between God and man, which means the priest was to bring the people before God and to bring God before the people. Now, of course, Jesus is the true mediator, as it says in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ is the mediator. Well, the Gospel of Mark illustrates this in a very profound way. The Gospel of Mark is bookended. It is framed. It is bracketed. It is sandwiched by one very specific Greek word, and that is the Greek word torn. To tear, to tear something apart. It appears at the beginning and at the end of the gospel. At the beginning of the gospel, in Mark 1.10, it says, Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. The word is literally torn. And the spirit like a dove descending upon him. The heavens are torn, and the Spirit of God descends. Now, this is an allusion to Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence. When Jesus came in his earthly ministry, heaven was opened. The heavenly veil was torn in two. At the coming of Jesus, there is now access to God. When Jesus comes, he brings God to the people. Same word occurs at the end of the gospel, where Jesus brings the people before God. Mark 15, 38. And the veil of the temple was torn. Same word, in two, from top to bottom. So at the death of Jesus, the veil of the temple was torn in two. He is the ultimate priest who obtains access to God for the people. He tears open the heavenly veil. He tears open the veil of the temple, and he allows access into the temple for all those who believe. Now, if you do not understand Christ's threefold office as prophet, priest, and king, then you might be very confused when it comes to passages like Revelation chapter 1, 
13 to 16, which we read at the beginning of the service. At first reading, this text appears bizarre, otherworldly, strange. But if you grasp the threefold office of Christ, it becomes clear. We see Christ as the prophet. The word of God comes out of his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. We see Christ as priest, wearing the priestly robes and the golden sash across his chest. That's priestly garments. He is walking among the lampstands. What are lampstands? Lampstands are temple furniture. They are temple fixtures. Christ is walking in the temple as a priest. And we see Christ as king. The one who holds power in his right hand. The one who is the son of man spoken of in Daniel 7.14. Who is given everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Christ is the priest ministering in his temple. Christ is the prophet preaching in his temple. Christ is the king building his temple. He is doing that today, right here, right now, in our midst. As I was preparing for this, I had a flashback. I was seeking to share the gospel with one of my colleagues. He's a very irreligious person, total pagan. Shared the gospel with him, and he said, well, I would love that Christ would die for my sins, but I don't need the Bible to tell me how to live. Perhaps you've met people like him. And then I had another flashback. When Olivia and I were residents, we used to live next to a Muslim couple. Very, very nice people. Very hospitable people. And of course, very religious people. And I used to talk to the husband a lot about religion. And he would say, well, we believe that Christ is, is a great teacher, a prophet of God, but he is not the savior of the world. And it occurred to me, as I was thinking about this, that these two men are so completely different. One is a devout Muslim, the other is a total pagan. They are so completely different, and yet they share one thing in common. They have something that they share in common. They both share a foundational refusal to accept Christ in his threefold office. You know, someone who says, well, we believe Jesus was a good teacher, but he's nothing more than that. Well, he's accepting Christ as prophet, but not as priest or king. Others say, I know that Jesus died for my sins, but I don't need the Bible to tell me how to live. Well, he's accepting Christ as a sacrificial high priest, but he is rejecting him as prophet and king. Still others say, well, I'm going to obey to the letter of the law what the Bible tells me to do, and that's how I'm going to get to heaven. That person's a legalist. He's seeking to obey Christ as king but he doesn't realize he needs a sacrificial high priest. Brethren, we must remember that when Christ is offered in the gospel, he is offered in his fullness. The true gospel recognizes Christ as all three, prophet, priest, and king. The scriptures require that we accept the whole Christ. Brethren, we will have the whole Christ or we will, have no, we will not have him at all. We must have the whole Christ or we will have none of him at all. We must submit ourselves to the whole Christ in his fullness, in his entirety, as the anointed one, the Messiah, in all three of his divine offices, prophet, priest, and king. That is how Christ rules and reigns in his church. Next, let us move on to the steward officers of the church the steward officers of the church. If Christ is the sovereign head of the church, then it only follows that the church always and forever belongs to Jesus Christ. So then, the officers of the church, the leaders of the church, are merely stewards of what belongs to Christ. They are stewards of the king. 
the New Testament, there are two offices of the church, the office of elder and the office of deacon. The New Testament specifies the office of elder as a governing office and the office of deacon as a serving office. Due to time constraints, we will only be discussing the office of elder this morning. There are three terms that the New Testament uses for the office of elder. Elder, which in Greek is presbyteros. Overseer, which in Greek is episkopos, also translated bishop. And pastor, also known as shepherd. Now throughout the history of the church, there seems to be major confusion regarding these terms. Is an elder different from a pastor? Is an elder different from an overseer or a bishop? I will argue, no, they are not different. These three terms are used synonymously, interchangeably. They all refer to the same office. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, I exhort the elders, presbyteros, among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd or pastor, that's the Greek word, pastor, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, that is the Greek word, episkopos, or bishop, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. So in this passage, Peter refers to the same group of people using three different terms, three different interchangeable terms, three different synonymous terms. They are three different titles for the same office. They are equivalent. They are one and the same. Now, of course, this begs a question. Why then use so many terms to refer to the same office? Well, I will argue that the terms give us different aspects of the same office. Different perspectives, different angles. They're not referring to different offices, they're referring to different angles of the same office. The term elder speaks to the dignity of the office. Elder means literally older man or aged one. But it's not just an older person. When I was in seminary, I heard of a particular church that put an age limit on becoming an elder. They said you had to be at least 35 years old to become an elder. If you weren't 35, sorry, you'll never become an elder until you're 35. You know the first thought that occurred to me? You know who would not have been an elder at that church? Jesus. Jesus died at the age of 33. So the term does not necessarily have to refer to someone who is literally old. Nor does it mean on the flip side that we should esteem someone who is young. That's not the point. The point is the spirit of the term does not refer to age. It refers to maturity. Wisdom, experience, it speaks of someone of proven character, a man of understanding. Age is not the essential issue. Wisdom is. Qualifications of elders fall under the realms of personal character, private relationships, and public reputation. And I'll also point out that there is only one qualification with regard to giftedness, able to teach. Now that's an important distinction. Because we should not confuse giftedness with character. We should not confuse ability with fidelity. A gifted man is not necessarily a qualified man. The term bishop or overseer speaks to the authority of the office. It speaks to one who oversees, who superintends, who guides, who governs. Titus 1.7 says, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Overseers are stewards of God. The image is of a governor of a house. He is not the owner of a house, but the owner of the house has put him in charge of the house. The owner of the house has authority over the governor, but the governor of the house has authority over the house. It is a derived authority. It is a delegated authority, but it is an authority Nonetheless, the term pastor or shepherd speaks to the work of the office. A shepherd leads, protects, and feeds. Pastors are to lead. Pastors are to lead their sheep back to Christ. 
We are all like sheep who have gone astray, each of us to his own way. We are all like sheep who wander from the straight and narrow. We are all like sheep trying to find a hole in the fence to wander off. But pastors are charged with leading the sheep back to the green and lush meadows of the gospel. Pastors are also charged with protecting the sheep against the wolves. And Titus 1.9 says that a pastor must be able to exhort in sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. Pastors must be on the alert. They must be on guard to protect the sheep and guard the household of God. Lastly, a shepherd must feed the flock. He must feed the flock on the feast that is the word of God. He must tend the lambs with the bread of life. Pastors seek to prepare the church for the wedding supper of the lamb by the washing of water with the word. This was the charge to Peter, and this is the charge to pastors. Dick Lucas was a well-known Anglican minister, a great preacher who ministered in London for 37 years. And in a sermon, he shared the story of a revolutionary moment that he had in his ministry when he was struggling. He was having a hard time. And so one day during lunch, he opened up his Bible to gain some refreshment. And he was reading when he got to John chapter 21, a passage where Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep. And Lucas says, My eyes were drawn to the words, Feed my lambs. And he says, I was shaken. I was shaken. Lucas realized the lambs belong to Jesus. They are not his sheep. They are Christ's sheep. The work of the pastor is not to choose the sheep. The work of the pastor is to feed the sheep. Christ chooses the sheep. Lucas was reminded that the sheep belong to Christ. He was reminded that Christ is Lord over his church and that he was merely a steward of what belonged to Christ. Lastly, let us see the structural forms of the church. The structural forms of the church. There are three possible forms of church government which exist. Three organizational structures or patterns, if you will. Three options from which to choose. You could think about it like that. They are Episcopalianism, Presbyterianism, and Congregationalism. First, let us discuss Episcopalianism. The Episcopalian form of government is government in the church led by bishops. And this, of course, comes from the Greek word episkopos, meaning overseer, also translated as bishop. The key aspect of this form of church government is to understand that they do not see the terms elder, pastor, and overseer as synonymous. Instead, they view them as three distinct, separate offices. The structure is as follows. The highest authority in the church is the archbishop, who has authority over the bishops, who then has authority over the rectors. Rectors are pastors of local churches. And then the pastor or the rector has authority over each congregation. Think about it another way. The local church is under the authority of the rector or pastor, and the rector or pastors in a group or an area are under the authority of that area's bishop. And all the bishops are under the authority of the archbishop. Now this lends itself to a top-down structure. And what I mean by top-down is that the archbishop has the authority to appoint bishops. And the bishops then have the authority to appoint rectors or pastors for each local church. And so what that means is that the church does not have autonomy. What we just did in appointing Hyun and Isaiah to the eldership would never happen in an Episcopalian church because their pastors are appointed for them. The church has no say. The church doesn't get to say who its pastors are because that pastor is appointed by the bishop who in turn is appointed by the archbishop. It is a top-down structure. Now, this is by far the most common, by far, 
the most common type of church government. This is the form of government of the Anglican Church, which we heard in the story of the Covenanters. This is the, obviously, the form of government of the Episcopalian Church, which is the American form of Anglicanism. This is also the polity of the Methodist Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And the clearest example of Episcopalian Church government is Roman Catholicism, the ultimate top-down structure. The Pope is the head of the church. Now, I do want to clarify that we should not walk away this morning thinking that all Anglicans are bad. That is not what I'm saying, and that is not what I want to leave you with. There have been many great and godly Anglican men throughout the years. Charles Simeon, J.I. Packer, John Stott, Dick Lucas. There's a group of Anglicans known as the Sydney Anglicans in Australia who teach at Moore Theological College. Very godly theologians and great men. But that does not mean we have to agree with their form of church government. The second form of church government is Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism is rule in the church by elders, coming from the Greek word presbyteros, meaning elder. Now, Presbyterians do see the terms pastor, elder, and bishop as synonymous. So this is perhaps the most obvious position because it actually says elders rule. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well. The idea is elders rule. They rule well. They exercise authority. And they have the ability to appoint other elders. Titus 1.5 says, Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So clearly elders are called upon to rule. They are called upon to lead the local church. Lastly, congregationalism. Now, in this schema, the authority of the church lies with the membership of the church, the congregation of the church. The congregation has a voice. And this is the view of church government of the Congregationalist Church as well as Southern Baptist churches. Let's look at some biblical support for congregationalism. Congregations enact church discipline. Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. At the highest level of church discipline, notice, who do you tell it to? You tell it to the church. You don't tell it to the elders. You don't tell it to the bishop or the archbishop. You tell it to the church, to the local church. The local church is speaking with a unified voice, calling a sinner to repent. And if that sinner is disciplined, it is the local church who is enacting the discipline. The voice of the church is expressed at the highest level of church discipline. Also, congregations decide church leadership. After the day, the day of Pentecost, the church needed to replace Judas as an apostle. And Acts 1.23 tells us that it was the church, the 120, who was involved in choosing Judas' replacement. Luke writes, So they, the church, put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabas and Matthias. The congregation also put forth the first deacons of the early church. Acts 6.5 says, The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they... The congregation chose the seven deacons. The whole church was also involved in sending men, sending missionaries, sending delegates. Acts 15.22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now we don't know the details of how they were chosen. Was there a vote? Was there common suffrage? We don't know. But what we do know is we know that the church was involved in choosing these men. The voice of the church means something. There is power in the voice of the church. Which leads us to our final exam question for this morning. Which is the most correct, most biblical form of church government? Is it A, Episcopalianism, 
B, Presbyterianism, C, Congregationalism, D, all of the above, E, both B and C, or F, none of the above. Well, if you're a good test taker, hopefully you can eliminate F, because it's not a trick question. I will also say that I don't believe the answer is A, because as we've seen, I believe the scriptures say that the terms pastor, elder, and overseer are synonymous. And so if it's not A, it's also not D, all of the above. If there are any high schoolers getting ready to take their SATs, this is a lesson in how to take a multi, multiple choice exam. <laughs> Which leaves us with B or C, or both B and C. Well, I think the clearest example or the clearest case in scripture is that elders rule. I think that is very clear. But I also think that the congregation has a voice. The scriptures make clear that some way, somehow, the congregation has a voice, which means the answer should be E, both B and C, both Presbyterianism and Congregationalism. And I believe that in some way, in some form, in some permutation, in some combination, there should be a balance, an interplay between both elder rule and congregational rule. Now that may look different for each local church because the scripture is silent as to how that interplay works out. But I believe both aspects are true, both are helpful, and most importantly, both are biblical. So briefly, let's move on to practical application on church government. If we understand that Christ is the head of the church, this changes everything as to how we do church. If we understand that Christ is the supreme head of the church, this changes everything about our ecclesiology. First, esteem your elders. Esteem your elders. We are to esteem our elders, not just because they are examples for the flock, not just because they are stand-up guys who love the Lord, and they are, but because Jesus Christ himself has given those elders to us. Ephesians 4.11, And he, that is Christ, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Brethren, Christ has given Cornerstone its elders. Christ himself. Christ is the one who has added Isaiah and Hyun to the eldership. And so we are to esteem them, not just for who they are, but for who Christ is. Christ, the supreme head of the church. Secondly, pray for your elders. James Bannerman says, The church has no store of life apart from Christ being in it. Within the province of the church, the Lord Jesus is the only teacher, lawgiver, and judge. If doctrine is taught, it is taught because he has revealed it. If ordinances are administered, they are administered in his name and because they are his. If government is established and exercised, it is through his appointment and authority. If saving grace is dispensed, it is dispensed through the virtue and power of his spirit. If a blessing is communicated, it is because he blesses. Brethren, Bannerman is right. And if Bannerman is right... If Christ is indeed the supreme head of the church, then why do we neglect to pray to the head of the church? If Christ is the head of the church, why do we not ask the head of the church to guide and lead his church? If Christ is king, then why do we not pray that the king would bestow wisdom upon his stewards? Brethren, we need to pray for the ministry of Cornerstone, and we need to pray for the ministers of Cornerstone. Third and last, remember your elders are sinners saved by grace. Quite frankly, sometimes we forget this. It escapes our notice that our elders are sinners saved by grace, just like me, just like you. This means that they are not perfect. They are not perfect. They may make mistakes. They may even sin against you. Because nobody obtains perfection this side of heaven. 
The only perfect minister in his church is Jesus Christ himself. So if you are looking for a perfect ministry, you won't find that here. You won't find that anywhere. Brethren, let us be patient. Let us be gracious. Let us be kind. Let us be quick to forgive, just as Christ has forgiven us. Perhaps the most famous of the Scottish Covenanters was Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford was one of the Westminster divines. He contributed to the Westminster Confession and was one of the major authors of the Westminster Catechism. In the midst of the Covenanters' conflict, Rutherford was banished from his church and home and forbidden to preach. In 1661, he was charged with treason and arrested. English Parliament sentenced him to be hanged. But by the time his summons for his hanging had arrived, Rutherford was already on his deathbed. When he heard he was to be summoned for execution, Rutherford said, Tell them I have got a summons already before a superior judge, and I must answer my first summons. And before your day arrives, I will be where few kings and great folks come. Rutherford answered his summons to heaven on March 29, 1661. In the midst of his suffering, Samuel Rutherford wrote a letter to a friend talking about the weight of taking up his cross and following King Jesus. He wrote, My witness is in heaven that I could wish many pound weights were added to my cross to know that by my sufferings Christ were set forward in his kingly office in this land. Brothers and sisters, Christ is the head of his church. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And may we at Cornerstone Bible Church do everything possible to set forward Christ in his kingly office in this church. Let us pray. O oh Lord Jesus, there can be no doubt that you love your church. There can be no doubt that you are gracious to your church. There can be no doubt that you are merciful to your church, that you are a good king. So Lord, Lord Jesus, let us seek to submit ourselves to you. Let us seek to come to you as our ultimate high priest. Let us seek to hear your word as your sheep. Lord, we submit ourselves to your rule and reign in this church. We pray in your most precious name. Amen.